This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, big money for FBO chains. And ERAU notches a knife a win. Two big aviation bells have come out of the house. We're going to talk about them. And Icon shareholders file a lawsuit. Also, bad news on that flight training case. We'll give you the update. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk today? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, contact. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, we're going to get to the news, but we want to talk a little bit about, we want to update folks. You know, we had mentioned. Luke Zifkin, who is on his way across the country in a Cub. And there's another one. And then, of course, Shinji we've talked about flying around the world. So give us the update. You you have been tracking all these folks. How are they doing? Well, we're happy to report that all three of these people that we've uh, we've talked about before, and we actually had Luke Zipkin on the show, mm-hmm. have made their flights. Luke Zipkin, if you recall, is a young pilot, and he had his dad that was going to fly behind him, signing him off on solos. And he flew from Connecticut to California, and he did get there. Awesome. So he has he arrived last week. Congrats. Uh, actually, he arri- arrived this week to, uh, to California. And Ben Templeton, young Ben from Triple Tree Aerodrome, he touched parts of 48 states, Ian. Wow. Uh, in a, basically a, a circumnavigation, if you will, going of the United States, and uh, ended up out in uh, California so far. So he's been there for a couple of days. And speaking of circumnavigations, we got to talk about Shinji Maeda. We had him on uh, Hangar Talk quite some time ago. A while ago, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shinji is a one-eyed pilot. He was refused to get a pilot certificate in Japan. He came to the United States. He went to Embry-Riddle and Prescott. And he became a pilot and ultimately a CFI. He flew across the world, Ian, in a Bonanza V-tail. And he landed uh, on June 11th, and hats off to all three of these fantastic pilots. Very cool. Okay, one more announcement we want to talk about. The You Can Fly Challenge is underway. Now, this is a, a big fundraising effort that AOPA engages every year with the Ray Foundation. 
James Ray started that foundation, and it supports a variety of aviation causes, including you can fly. Of course, that we've talked about many of the programs, flying clubs, flight training, and high school. That is going on from now through December 31st. And basically what happens is every dollar that AOPA members give to the foundation will be matched by the Ray Foundation up to two and a half million bucks. So there's a possibility here for $5 million to go into that You Can Fly program. That is awesome. And, you know, every every little bit helps, Ian. And if we can contribute a couple of dollars ourselves, it goes a long way for those scholarships. And we should also mention that uh, Luke Zipkin, when he was flying across the country, was raising money for some AOPA scholarships for the foundation that would ultimately go to their scholarships. That's right. Okay, the guest. So the guest this week is this is a, we're gonna we've done something a little different. I'm really excited. You suggested this. You met up with Michael Schneider. He is a pilot and gives back to the community by flying animals. Michael Schneider asked us along on a mission, a, an animal rescue mission, and he founded PilotsToTheRescue.org. Folks can join up with uh, Michael on some of those missions. And you do not have to be an instrument rated pilot. You don't have to have X number of hours. You do have to be competent. You have to have enough room. And he does have a lot of parameters. He explains all that in the interview that we had with him. We did an interview while we were flying a mission uh, to pick up some cats and a dog. And we went from, uh, went from Maryland to North Carolina and from North Carolina Back to New York, uh, Essex County, which is uh, where he is in New Jersey, just, just outside of New York City. So thank you again, Michael Schneider and PilotsToTheRescue.org. Very cool. Okay. Hey, getting to the news. First thing we want to talk about is the FBO chains, the big FBO chains in the U.S., uh, Signature and Atlantic, have changed hands. Ian, uh, if you might recall that we talked about this quite some time ago, that some of the transactions were in the works and it actually has come to pass. So as you said, Signature and uh, Atlantic, they basically were bought by other companies. And together they have about, I want to say about 300 FBOs between them in the country, which I thought was a whole ton, but there are a lot more independent FBO owners out there and some other big ones that we that we know well, like the folks at Shelter who've helped us during some hurricane cleanup procedures. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So Signature, interestingly, was bought by a group of investors, including Cascade Investments, which is owned by Bill Gates. These investors came together, pulled in their money, and paid Signature $4.7 billion for the company. They're a, uh, they were, I should say, a British-based. BBA Aviation was the owner. So that's now gone through. And then Atlantic Aviation, which had put itself up for sale, McGuire Invest Infrastructure Corporation, a couple months ago, they also reached a deal with KKR Investments. That's out of New York. What does that mean for us, do you think? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't think there are going to be really many immediate changes in terms of prices and that sort of thing. You know, theoretically, there'll be some, I think, more consolidation. You'll see some more investments, maybe some of those smaller FBOs being uh, bought up, probably. But I, I wouldn't see, you know, many sort of operational changes. I don't think there's been a ton with the previous owners. You know, it's just a matter of consolidation and growth. And I think we'll continue to see that. Yeah, it looks like it's more of an economic move for the companies that are involved. A, really a chance for them to make some money on the deal as people return to flying and especially GA flying. Big time. Yeah, after the coronavirus pandemic, which is, you know, we're still in the throes of it, but we're coming out of it right now. So a lot more people are flying and folks are still taken to the air. 
Yeah, that's right. So we'll have to see. Hopefully not uh, not too many changes in terms of prices. If anything, maybe go down there. But hey, moving on to NIFA, a little unusual this year, the SafeCon competition. They decided to do it virtually. And uh, as you mentioned, Embry Riddle out in Prescott won the competition. They did, Ian. And so I'm going to explain the acronym. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> NIFA, the National Intercollegiate Flying Association, and SafeCon, which is a safety and flight evaluation conference. So that is an annual event, and that's where aviation colleges and universities pit themselves and their teams against each other in a variety of different formats, everything from groundwork and flight planning to pre-flight planning and pre-flight actual pre-flight yeah. to dropping yeah, to dropping flower packets on a target yeah um and they're and they're graded against each other and this is for huge bragging rights Ian. this is not a it's not just a, a minimal thing there are regional events and it all culminates in a national competition mm-hmm. so i was curious so i went to the press release when they announced you know what the what the competition was going to be. Cause it's like, how do you hold a virtual, you know, flying competition? And the answer is, well, you don't really. So they didn't do the flying portion of the competition this year, but there are these ground portion of the competitions, which I got to be honest, David would not have been my thing in college. Uh, no, but for, I skipped a lot of college kids, classes too. Yeah. I know. I know. They, yeah. so it's basically like competitive flight planning. You mentioned it the is. pre-flight, which is pretty cool. Yeah. You know, they do stuff, they change the airplane and then you got to find the discrepancies. That's really neat. But yeah, it's so aircraft recognition, you know, the flight planning, that sort of thing. So, but it's very cool. It shows a lot of work and preparation by these kids. Well, also, I think it's pretty interesting how the world has adapted to some of the coronavirus pandemic, you know, protocols. And so instead of having the message drops, the power off spot landings, and the short field approaches and landing events, which were hugely popular, you know, they really pitted themselves against each other with with the other skills. Navigation, as you mentioned, being one of them as well, and computers and things like that. So those are the kind of things you can do online. Some you can't. You know, the flying part, they were scratching their heads trying to figure out how could, how could the group do the flying, and they just decided, let's just postpone it this year. And uh, now they're going to return to an in-person format next year, at Ohio State University in Columbus. So we could look forward to that in 2022. Yeah, that'll be, I bet, for those kids, even even a bigger sort of, you know, it's a bigger fight because it's like they've been waiting for this. You know, they've been practicing and waiting to compete against each other head-to-head. So that'll be a good one. Absolutely. So I want to move on. Two bills recently came out of the House of Representatives that will impact general aviation, and, and AOPA is really big behind these. One that we've talked about a little bit in the past but is now codified through this bill is better NOTAMs. we got to have a better NOTAM system. You and I were talking about this before we started recording. It's like the NOTAM system is awful. It's so antiquated, so hard to sift through this stuff. It's got to be updated. Well, it's hard, I think, as a, as a pilot, as any pilot would, would, would tell you. You know, going through the NOTAMs can be a chore, and we do want to read them all. And especially here in the Washington, D.C., Frederick, Maryland area, you know, we're, we're, we operated near the CIFRA. And uh, some of those notes have been in place, the TFRs have been in place for a long time. So what are the important ones that we really need to know about? And that might be other notes for airfields and TFRs that are popped up at, you know, in the last few days and all. And it's hard to wade through a lot of that. Plus, I have heard of other pilots flying around 
and they um, they check their notams in advance with ForeFlight or Garmin Pilot, another another way to check online, and still ran into notams that were not published correctly or not published according to the, these pilots. And that could get you, you know, if someone's really looking over your shoulder, it could be a problem. And I just think it's hard to to get all that information that we're tasked with. You know, we, we, we got to get it all before we go flying. So what can we do, you know, to make it to make it simpler? That's a key thing. AOPA has behind this, been behind this for a long time. Yeah. You know, I was, I was just thinking as you were talking, I guess I've been flying for... I don't know, let's call it 23 years, 24 years. And I think the only update, the only sort of real tangible update to the NOTAM system in that time has been the addition of like the graphic NOTAM webpage for FAA. And then obviously ForeFlight and Garmin and others, the developers have taken them and, you know, some of that same data and made graphical NOTAMs. And that is, that's really the only change in that time. And that's, I mean, with what with the resources that we have available today, for that to be the only improvement, that that's pretty bad. You know, something that's interesting, I just thought of this as we were talking, would be uh, for the NOTAM system to maybe, you know, the folks who are putting this together, what if there was like a, a green, yellow, red type, you know, uh, classification mm-hmm. where you, if you knew someone, if you knew something was going to happen, say, you know, say the Pappy lights are going to be out at a certain time, you could sort of put a yellow warning on, you know, ahead of time. Yeah. And then while and it's, it's going happen, yeah. on, it could be red. And then when it's yeah. gone Just for like a couple of weeks, weather now. yeah, green. So yeah, anything like that would uh, help us out. Yeah. You know, give us a clue. <laughs> That's right. So this is, uh, it's the number is HR 1262, the Notice to Airmen Improvement Act of 2021. It was bipartisan. The other one that was also bipartisan that was just passed out was HR 468, the Expedited Delivery of Airport Infrastructure Act of 2021. That's a mouthful, Ian. It really is. I know. It's like deep breath afterwards. Basically, what this does is it allows airport improvement program funds, so AIP funds. These are the federal grants that airports take, you know, for various projects. It allows incentive payments for when those projects finish on time. So that is similar to a lot of road projects and a lot of other construction where you get in and get out and get it done. And that way, uh, the, the incentivization of that would, would theoretically speed things up, get that infrastructure a little done a little bit faster. And wow, we need some infrastructure improvements at GA airports because, you know, Mark Baker says, give us a mile of runway and it opens up the rest of the country, really. Yeah, right. So taxiways, runway improvements. And then I think in certain cases, they can be used for things like hangars. And and man, do we need hangars? In fact, you just did a story about this. The need for hangars. I mean, it's anecdotally, you hear it all the time, but there's been a couple of surveys out recently that shows it is it is bad. I mean, the, the need is huge. Hangars are in high demand, Ian, and they have been for ever since I've been into aviation. And I will say this, that and when I was back in Atlanta, when I started my flight training, I applied for a hangar at DeKalb Peachtree Airport, and I was put on I was put on a seven year waiting list, and it turned out to be a fifteen year list. They granted me a hangar after I had come to AOPA in Frederick, Maryland, and sold my Mooney. Yes, and so that's not unusual. So uh, we actually we sent surveys to seven hundred airport support network volunteers and they surveyed what was going on in their own backyards 
And that is true. And we also sent a, a separate survey to 116 uh, Pennsylvania airports. And, and the need is there. The infrastructure need is there for more hangars. The problem is if you have a fabric-covered airplane, you're really even more sensitive to leaving your airplane outside. But even if you don't, if you have, a, you know, say you do have a, an all-metal Mooney or a Cessna, you know, having your airplane tied down outside, not only is it available to the weather, and that could be hail or wind or any other, other thing like that, but also it does damage to the plexiglass. It does damage to um, your avionics and your wiring, or it could. And in Moonies, uh, there's this glue between the windows of some of the older Moonies, and it kind of oozes out. So it's better to be indoors in a hangar. And we have noted that there are hangar waiting lists at airports from the East Coast to the West Coast to the Midwest to the Southeast and all over. And now the prices vary depending on where you are and what's available. So um, it's not so much about pricing as it is about availability, but we don't want to be priced out of the market either. Yeah, and I was surprised. You know, the survey also asked about the condition of the hangars, and only 8% of people describe their hangars as an excellent condition, which surprises me because I, I feel like most, I don't know, maybe we're, we've taken a reduced standard as, as excellent, but it's like a lot of the T-hangers I see you know, at decent sized airports are, are in really good condition. I mean, there's certainly rows of hangars that, that are maybe older and don't have concrete floors and, you know, no electricity and things like that. But yeah, apparently a full third of people who answered this said that their hangars were in need of some or major repair. Well, uh, there was a hangar that the Westminster Airbats Flying Club was in over here at Frederick Airport, Ian, and for a while, you know, we were in a hangar. It didn't have a floor. It was a dirt floor, and the ceiling leaked. But the flip side of that was that the airport knew that there was going to be some ongoing construction. Those hangars were going to be demolished. That was part of a longer plan, an infrastructure improvement plan. And so, you know, the, the folks in the hangars knew that was the case. But it is surprising that you would think that if you have a hangar, you're a hangar tenant, that you would have electricity, which we also didn't have at those those old hangars. But you would think that electricity, so you could work in your aircraft, or you know, plug in a heater to uh, to heat your aircraft engine in the wintertime. All those things are really important. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. So hey, let's move on. This is a weird one. We haven't talked about it, Icon, in a while, but you know, they keep coming up, so we got to talk about them. A group of Icon shareholders just filed suit saying that Chinese owners are not really interested in the airplane so much as they are the technology, and all they want to do is strip that out, send it back to China, and leave the airplane for dead. The interesting part of this lawsuit, uh, and Dave Horseman wrote the story, we thank you, Dave, for following up on Icon, is that Kirk Hawkins, the founder of the company, is involved with the lawsuit, as well as Boeing, former Boeing CEO Phil Condit. And the the allegation is that, as you mentioned, that the technology will be scarfed by folks in, in China and engineers in China to use on some other different type of aircraft. I'm, I can only imagine the emerging eVTOL market might be a target. And, uh, you know, Icon did break the mold when they made the airplane, and there's a lot of cool technology that allowed them to make such a popular and, and relatively friendly airplane to fly. Although we've talked about other issues that, you know, about flying that airplane, but the technology is the key. And Ian, what was interesting to me when reading the story that Dave wrote was the fact that, that the folks at Icon were kind of stymied, you know, when they were looking for outside investors, the parent company in, in China wouldn't really open talks up to other potential 
investors, and, and that really is keeping the company down. It's a sad thing. We had so many back orders when the, when the airplane first came on the market. So yeah. Yep. I think, you know, there's a sentence from the suit that really sums this up well. It says defendants have illegally breached and continue to breach their fiduciary duties to Icon and plaintiffs in order to facilitate the exportation of Icon's IP and aircraft design, aircraft manufacturing and advanced carbon fiber structures manufacturing to China. So, yeah, they're saying that essentially they're defrauding the shareholders. It's it's signed by 35 minority shareholders. So, you know, it's not it's not just Kirk. It is others. And so. It'll be really interesting to see what happens here, I think, because it's been, you know, things of the company have been a little, I would say, unclear since uh, since Kirk was forced out. And, and this maybe is an explanation as to why, at least their explanation as to why. And there's a, a Dave mentions in his story that that Icon was close to an agreement with Yamaha that would have given the Japanese firm a controlling stake in the company. Now, listen, Yamaha makes more than just motorcycles, which I'm familiar yeah. with. They make <laughs> musical musical instruments. I mean, they yes. it is a large company, and they have uh, actually have a, a lot of outposts here in the United States. So that's a, a worldwide company there that would have put some some real financial oomph behind that Icon product. And it's a shame that that they were stymied so far you know, in providing folks a little bit better background, you know, a little bit more of a, of an economical boost to get that company, you know, keep it off the ground and, and move forward a little bit more with it. Yeah. All right, David. So we got to finish up this week, unfortunately, on yet another legal case. And that is this Warbird Adventures, you know, can you train in a limited category aircraft or can't you? You know, we were concerned that the FAA was going to take really kind of the hardline stance that the court did and view that decision as saying, hey, people with, you know, anything other than a regular category aircraft, you can't have instruction in it. And and unfortunately, with a June 8 letter, that is what they've done. They have, their interpretation is that with any number of, let's call them non-regular category aircraft, you cannot get instruction in the airplane without a letter of deviation authority. So this could affect aircraft owners and especially experimental aircraft owners from receiving flight instruction in their own aircraft without specific FAA permission to do so in the form of that letter that you just mentioned. Also, it could prohibit owners of over 300 limited category aircraft from receiving flight instruction in their own aircraft without an exemption, or prohibit owners of primary category aircraft from receiving flight instruction in their own aircraft without an exemption, or limit access to flight training in a specific make and model of an aircraft. So it's wide sweeping, and we, of course, are opposed to this and have claimed so and sent letters in response to this ahead of time and after the fact. Yeah, so it, like you say, it is a big deal. I mean, I, you know, so to, to try and clear this up, I mean, this is a very complicated issue, but in the past, you know, the reason you don't see experimental airplanes at a lot of flight schools is because the flight schools, they couldn't own the airplane and then offer instruction in it without this, you know, letter. However, owners of experimental aircraft, so you buy your, an experimental, you can go hire an instructor and fly with it. That was previously what was understood. The FAA is saying that's not the case right now. Same with, you mentioned primary category. Now, that's not a huge deal now, right? Primary category. There aren't, I think there's maybe only a couple aircraft that are certified primary category. But for example, like the Bai E-Flyer uh, was going for primary category, sir. Coming up to the market pretty soon. We've talked about that quite a bit. So that would kill it. I mean, you just can't, you know, it's like 
every flight school having to get one of these letters, forget about it. It's not going to happen. So well, I don't think the FAA has enough personnel to enforce that, Ian. That's my that's my concern. It's a you know it's a time intensive situation. Yeah. Not to mention, it's like, it, it totally to me is not the spirit of the regulation. It's like, okay, it's one thing if you buy an experimental as a flight school and then you go and offer instruction. And, you know, when you talk about risk to the public, you know, I get it because it's like this, this school has this airplane, there's customers walking in off the street that don't understand experimental and what that means. But it's like, if you're buying this thing and hiring an instructor to teach you in it, it's like the only, you know, it's you, you're accepting that risk. And so it's, that just seems crazy to me. And and we did talk about this aspect of it before, Ian, the last time we chatted about this, you know, possibility, which has come about. But, you know, the flight instructors are instructing. Uh, we're, we're not we're not paying them to 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 buy this airplane. We're basically paying them to instruct us in a certain aircraft. So it's doubly confusing and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we definitely have to keep our eye on the ball and, and see what happens in the near future. But AOPA is not sitting on our hands about this. We're you know, advocating to, to get further clarification for this and let's see if we can make it work. Yeah, David, that's a great point. You know, uh, Mark Baker had a good quote about this. He said, we need to get this flight training issue cleared up as quickly as possible and by any means possible. And, and he means that this is a big priority for the association. So he said, we're I can assure you we will not stop until the situation is resolved and common sense prevails. And when Mark says it, he means it. So, um, yeah, definitely expect more on that. Absolutely. So, Ian, before we bring on uh, Michael, I wanted to uh, just clarify one thing. We, we started at the beginning of the program. You know, Luke Zipkin's airplane is out there in California right now, and Ben Templeton's is too. I mentioned that Ben, ben has plans to fly to all 48 states. Now, as we record this, he hasn't yet touched all 48 states, but the plan is for that to happen real soon. And as we did mention, Luke's airplane is already out there, and, and our hats are still off to both of those young pilots. Yeah, very cool. All right, so hey, as you mentioned, uh, let's bring on Michael. I, I can't wait to hear what he's got to say uh, uh, while you guys are flying. It's got to be distracting being interviewed while you're trying to fly. But yeah, I can't wait to hear what he has to say about it. Michael Schneider of uh, pilotstotherescue.org. Folks who are listening to Hangar Talk are going to note uh, the audio sounds a little bit different. We're on a rescue mission from Maryland to North Carolina. Welcome aboard. Well, David, thanks for having me. Michael Schneider here, top dog uh, founder of Pilots to the Rescue. Uh, started the organization back in 2015. Yeah. I got my ticket at Sporties, world famous Sporties in Claremont County in uh, Batavia, Ohio. I was living in Cincinnati at the time. I sold a business okay. and uh, went there to work for the new owners. And uh, I didn't realize that I loved aviation until I went skydiving. Aha! So you you, you noticed you liked aviation. You kind of you, you must have liked skydiving. You, you must have liked getting up to those levels better. Yeah, I had never experienced being in a small plane before. And anybody who's gone skydiving, you know you either have a tiny GA plane with the seats taken out, or you have a purpose-built plane if you're lucky. But I was in one of those tiny GA planes, probably it was a 182 or something. Uh 
and I'd never seen the cockpit sitting on the floor of a plane with someone strapped to my back. So I became very interested in what was going on up in the cockpit um, after four jumps. And I asked that instructor after the fourth jump, you know, what's it like flying one of these small planes? And he encouraged me to take one of those discovery flights. And that all started uh, at Blue Ash Air Airport in Cincinnati, which is no longer, it's a park, but. I gotcha. But that got you your, your first taste of uh, handling the controls of a GA airplane. You obviously liked it. You took a shine to it. Uh, you, got, you told me earlier um, that you have about 600 hours now. So take me through getting your pilot certificate over at Sporties to where you are now. You're in Essex County, uh, and that is um, just outside of New York City. And you, got, you went from zero to 600 hours some kind of way. Yeah, Walk that's me through right. It. Yeah. Well, I was one of those uh, student pilots where it took a little bit longer because uh, I was trying to make it work in my life. So it took me, I think, two years and 100 hours to get my license up in Ohio. And then when I moved back to New York after my contract was over with that company, uh, I felt like I was starting all over again. I joined Westchester Flying Club and yeah. uh, Hotel Papa November, Westchester County Airport, and it still, still exists today. And learning Bravo airspace, I felt like I didn't know how to fly anymore. I knew I could fly legally, but it was really definitely still learning that busy airspace. So once I got checked out in a few of those aircraft, uh, archers and arrows mainly, they had some bonanzas. I did one flight with uh, Pilot and Pause, great organization. I think a lot of people that get into public flying, right. public benefit flying, start with Pilot and Pause, big proponent of that organization. But I wanted, being an entrepreneur, I wanted to start my own thing, wanted to get into larger aircraft, and I saw starting a 501c3 cherry as a way to do that. And so that's how you founded Pilots to the Rescue. Now, you left one part out. I read online on your website, you actually got a grant to start that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, actually starting the organization came out of uh, some work that I did with this program called Landmark. And uh, they have this thing where they challenge you to start something that you've always wanted to do, but for whatever reason, you're making excuses. Landmark has centers all around the world. And uh, I was like, you know what, that's, that's absolutely true. I'm saying I didn't have the money, the time, whatever it is. So. They say within 48 hours, pick an unreasonable goal, start something. So I said I wanted to start a charity saving animals with, with an aircraft, and I picked 10,000 bucks, and 48 hours I raised 10,000 bucks just asking friends and family. And I did attract the attention of ASPCA. ASPCA gave us also a $10,000 grant. They matched it, wow. Yeah, well, I, don't, I don't think it was a, intended to be a match, but uh -huh. yeah, so that's how I started. And uh, I started renting aircraft, I mean, we couldn't, buy our first aircraft, which was a Piper Lance. Yeah. Uh, uh, now we're in a Saratoga, but um, didn't have the money to do that. So but, you're able to rent airplanes with, yeah. the, with those funds and basically, basically get some of the uh, animal you know, transport devices, uh, the crates and stuff, because yeah. some of them are kind of specialized. And so that got you off the ground. Yeah, so um, I was renting aircraft and uh, joined a flying club at Republic, two of them actually, because I moved from Westchester County to Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn, New York, where I currently live. So tell, tell people who are not familiar with Republic, which is a, which is a very popular GA airport, where it is on Long Island. Give us a quick rundown. Yeah, Re Republic's one, one of the busiest uh, GA airports. Republic Airport, they have multiple flying clubs there, very busy GA airspace. I think it's, it might be top 10 in the country. I think Teterboro's one, and I don't know if Santa Monica's two or whatnot, but um, it's up there. And I joined a few flying clubs there, great flying clubs. Very busy airport, but what that did is it enabled me to keep in contact with other some of the other club members. Flying clubs are an amazing way to network. Renting aircraft is a little bit smaller 
Uh, they don't always give you the rental the role the rental role like the other pilots flying. But flying clubs are very active in that way. I found so I enjoyed that. Not just socially, but you're, you're getting ready to tell us about um, you know the the camaraderie, but also it helps save money too. Absolutely, yeah. So when you rent an aircraft, you're you're typically paying higher rates than when you're in a flying club. That's absolutely true, and you have more access to the membership and the camaraderie, which enable me to leverage some of other pilots to fly missions, uh -huh. which. That, that sets us apart. Um, this organization is no longer about me. How we grow this mission yeah. by saving more animals and just public benefit flying in general. Like we're known for doing animals, but we do other flights when able. Oh, we you? work with Angel Flight East um, quite often to do the, the medical flights. We work with a great organization out at uh, uh, Norwood Airport in Massachusetts called Above the Clouds. They do uh, discovery flights for foster kids. Oh, wow. Um, that sounds, sounds great. So we work with anybody that will work with us. And the way we scale this organization is by working with other pilots, just like Pilot and Paws. Yeah. So it's not as... But your mission is more broad than just animals. You talked about foster kids. You talked a little bit about medical missions. Angel Flight, you talked about that a little bit. I think Pilots and Paws is a little, bit, a little bit more centric on, on animal rescues. They are, and that's more of the weekend warrior with the, that wants to take one one or two animals or, you know, just wants to do the transport and not get involved in any, any of the other part. We get actively involved in all the transports we do, whether it's dedicating a transport coordinator, helping coordinate legs. Um, right now, it's typically working with pilots that have access to larger aircraft, uh, six-place aircraft, uh, because it connects well with our, our aircraft. And we obviously that's what sets us apart is we own an operator aircraft and we're now saving for a caravan. So we're going to be sort of that hybrid model where we have the Saratoga for smaller missions, the caravan for larger missions. We're actually talking with Dog is my co-pilot. I don't know if you know Dr. Rourke how about, that? about how we can when we get that caravan. And I, I look up to that organization and that that Dr. Rourke is an amazing guy. And I look up to him because they're further a little further ahead ahead of us. They've been around for 10 years. And he still flies his station errors, 206. But it would be great to coordinate with him and that organization on the larger missions, obviously. Like a caravan is not a speed demon. It's about all about the, the, the cargo, the low carrying capability. And also mission specific, you can get in and out of some places that might be more difficult than other aircraft. But look, but take us back real quick, take it down a notch. Sure. Uh, and you talked a little bit about public benefit of flying. You know, when pilots get together and they have a mission, that drives them. That's something that we've all tried to do, especially like, I've done some hurricane relief missions, my, missions myself, yeah. and a pilot's and pause mission. Can folks get involved if they have a Cessna 172, if they have access to something a little bit smaller than the, the sixth place, uh, seventh place airplane we're in right now? Absolutely. You can go to the website. You can sign up as a pilot. We have a pretty extensive database that we're looking to tap into. And this is a great year for pilots to the rescue because we're launching a new self-service system, like a ride board. We're just finalizing it now. Oh. We expect it to be up and running within 30 days. So we got a spot news out of our rescue mission trip today to North Carolina. That's right. Yeah, we're in the final throes of testing that system on our website. And it, it's it's like a transport board. It shelters or a public benefit organizations can go there and post missions, and pilots can bid on them and have that conversation. But now we need to let our, uh, our podcast listeners know and folks who might be tuned into this. We have to really divorce ourselves from commercial missions and getting paid a lot of this is out of our own pockets. You told me earlier when we were uh, prepping the airplane for the ride that um, you're paying for fuel out of your own pocket and things like that. So give us a quick 411 on what you need to stay away from as a potential pilot. Yeah, so I'm, I'm still a private pilot, but I'm working on getting my commercial. 
but you do need to pay the cost of the mission and speak with your accountant about what you can deduct from your taxes. Typically, you do come out of pocket for these missions to comply with the FARs and the regulations that the FAA has set up. There's lots of information online about this topic. It's been debated to death. Yeah. Um, but uh, we cannot reimburse pilots, and they have to pay for the missions out of their own pocket and deduct what they feel they can. So it's out of the goodness of their heart that they lend themselves, their aircraft, their time, their resources to these type of missions. Yeah, but it's it's very rewarding. I think a lot of pilots are looking for excuses to fly, and after a while, after you've gone lunch somewhere and done the tour, you're looking for reasons to, to give back, and using your ticket to give back is extremely rewarding, uh, whether it's animals or, or people. And it, it really make, gives you a sense of accomplishment as a pilot because you're putting it to good use. So it gives you a purpose and makes you feel good about yourself. Yep. It also makes, uh, makes us help other people. You know, and Whether we're helping a person in a medical mission or helping a family receive a pet that will bring love to their family, makes you feel good about yourself and you're doing something positive for aviation. Absolutely. Uh, I can't tell you after saving uh, more than 500 animals, uh, and then we're, our goal is 500 this year, so it'll be over five, over 1,000 this year. That, that feeling you get when you see that family that adopts that animal uh, is extremely rewarding. We don't always find out about that, but when we do, it's great. You see the family all happy. It's like, oh, I remember that dog, or I remember that cat. And uh, these animals, I do believe, they, they know they're being rescued. They're generally coming from overcrowded shelters here on the East Coast, down south. Uh, the Carolinas, we're always going to North Carolina, South Carolina, sometimes Tennessee. And uh, the conditions they're coming from are, are not, they're not always that great. They're generally overcrowded. They're facing euthanasia. And we're getting them out of, out, out of their, their situation. And when we get them to the airport and we take them out of the crates, they're very excited. Tell me a little bit about transporting animals. There's got to be certain considerations in, in transporting animals. Right now, we're flying at 10,000 feet. Would you fly at 10,000 feet with a load of animals? No, absolutely not. Uh, we are in a turbocharged ox oxygen on board. Uh, not that we need it at 10,000, but with an animal, they become hypoxic starting at 8,000 feet. So 8,000 feet is their ceilings when you have the animals on board. Unless you have oxygen for all, all the dogs and cats, which I doubt. Yeah, that would make uh, that would be tough to do. Yeah. Uh, tough to keep it on their little muzzles and stuff. So, um, and today we're on a mission. We're going to rescue some some dogs and some cats. That's yeah, right. And, and you sent me a picture earlier, and the, the animals are adorable. They're going to make really make a lot of people uh, very very happy. So, uh, what? Tell me about accidents. We've got a. You know, and I'm talking about pet accidents here. We're in a really nice uh, aircraft here, a turbocharged, and it's beautiful. It's a 1982, right? 1982 Saratoga? Turbo Saratoga SP. And it's, it's, a, it's a good ride. It's got a lot of room for, for this mission. But have you had any animal accidents, poops or peas or barfs? Yeah, so uh, we, we've definitely had that. A lot of times the animals... Uh, they, they will do just that. They'll poop or they'll pee or they'll, they'll, they'll barf, just like you said it. That was great. We, we call the, the, the poops dookies. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it does get fragrant. Uh, but generally, the, the veterinary, <laughs> the vet center that they, they went to to get checked out yeah. or the, the origin shelter, they, they don't feed them. So, But um, we've had a few escape artists. Um, it's really important when you're doing this work to have great crates. Um, we, we always use, generally use the hard plastic today. We use some of the wire crates because we 
We have uh, extra passenger on board who can... Yeah. I would not do this work by yourself as solo pilot. Oh, so it's better to have a co-pilot. I, I almost always bring a second person. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's not great for single pilot resource, uh, unless you're doing a small load and you're really convinced that the crates are secure with the crate hardware and zip ties. So, no worries, you're, you don't necessarily have to have a, an aviation co-pilot, you need a pet no. co-pilot. Co yeah, because the, some stuff happens yeah. in flight. Um, it, you know, not the smells, but the it could be an escape artist, it could be an animal that is really di distressed. Or nervous, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, we, I've seen this on the ground, and I'm able to identify because I do so much of this work. Uh -huh. But they start chewing at the crate, um, they could become bloody or really agitated, and and that's a flight risk. So we don't we don't carry that animal. But you don't always detect it until you get up in the air. Generally, they just go to sleep. I see the drone yeah, and the a vibration. Little, a little bit higher at, uh, altitude as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I, in this airplane, we ha you have a, a tarp down underneath the crates. Yeah. So that looked to me like a super good idea. Absolutely. Yeah. So we generally remove all the seats. Yep. And uh, any kind of plastic uh, waterproof tarp is advisable to put underneath the crates because if they the crates can't won't catch everything, so that's your fail safe to protect the carpets and stuff like that. Um, and, and most rental fleets and um, flying clubs I found are fine with with you using the airplane for this use, but you do want to protect the interior. And the smells. I mean, nobody likes getting into one of those aircraft. If, it, if you get that on the interior, you know how hard it is to get it out. Actually, when I was a young person, my old man had an air coupe airplane, and my brother and I and my dad went up for a flight, and my dad did some ups and down, up and down whoop de doo and my brother heaved, and uh, we never could get the smell out of the air coupe. And that was an airplane where you could basically you know, roll the cockpit back. Understood. Tell me about the most unusual animal you've transported. I think you have a pretty good story you're going to tell us. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we do do endangered species, and this work is extremely rewarding because you're making a huge difference in our ecosystem. We've done three red wolf rescues. Um, the red wolf is the most endangered canid in the world. There's only 10 collared red wolves known in the wild. So those are just the ones that we know about. Goodness. And where would, we, where would the domesticated dog be without the wolf? So, so the wolf led to the dog. That's right. Simple as that. Humans have a symbiotic relationship with man's best friend, but it yeah. started with the wolf. And the wolf realized that humans are a source of food. And when food became scarce, the wolves, they realized they could uh, get more food if they were friendly. So they and were more attracted to humans. Yes. The, fire, the warmth of the fire, the smells of cooking the oh, meat, right. meat yeah. whatever it may be, they, they were driven to that. And, you know, uh, it became more and more domesticated over time, and that's how we came up, came with the, our, you know, our furry friends. We just did a red wolf rescue um, that required federal court approval, not with our organization, but with all the wolf, like the wolf conservation center that we work with in Westchester County. Okay. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife they got was involved. involved. Uh -huh. Yeah, and it took a really long time. This was a wolf uh, that we transported down to North Carolina. Great. And it's being released in the wild. Now, that only happens every few years. It's a big deal. And that's a, you were telling me um, before we started the recording, that's at Dare County, North Carolina. For folks who haven't been there, that is just past First Flight Airport. So that's an interesting place to release a red wolf. It's on a the great coast and outer airport. banks of North Carolina. Yeah, really great airport. And from what I understand, that's more private land there. Yeah, there so is a lot. There are a lot of, uh, and there's a lot of nature uh, land out there, some you know, conservancy uh, wetlands and things like that, which I guess is kind of the, you know, some of that is the environment for the red wolf. 
And so, so reintroducing them to the wild is what's happening. Yeah, that, that type of work is really important because if you eliminate a species, it messes up our whole ecosystem. And you can research this. They've had problems with eradicating the wolf. If they felt that the wolf was nu a nuisance, like out west, yeah. they would put things in place to get rid of them. And another species starts to pro proliferate. Yeah, I had actually read about that uh, quite some time back when I was doing some climbing out in the Grand Teton area. It's a little bit broken. In Yellowstone. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. All right, so red wolf's the most unusual animal you've transported. Uh, what's, what's, this, what's the largest animal you've transported? Uh, the largest animal, we've done a sea turtle that weighed nearly 100 pounds, but we've done an Alaska Malumet. Malumet from Alaska. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, this wolf was down in Florida. Right over the transmitter. And we ended up bringing it up to Vermont. It well, seems like Vermont is a much better place for that animal. Much better environmental for yeah. an animal like that. Yeah. So that, that's 150 pounds. That's a pretty large animal. Yeah. And, and again, we have, uh, basically that's almost um, FAA weight of a human. Pretty much. And we couldn't find a crate big enough for that animal, yeah. so we tethered. But he was a gentle giant. The big ones usually are the softies. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. How about the smallest uh, that you've transported? Yeah, well, the smallest are the puppies and kittens. Uh huh. Yeah. So the, probably a kitten would be the smallest, just weighing, could weigh like a pound, right? Yeah. Puppies, just pounds. And so you started to tell us a little bit about uh, about this. Uh, I can't remember if it was on the recording or when you and I were chatting ahead of time. I'll put you on the spot. Any, uh, any animal, inadvertent animal uh, escape artist? Yeah, yeah, so we've, we've had escape artists in the cockpit. That's why it's really important to bring someone with you. Um, we had a cat that got through through a crate that was either not properly secured or got dislodged, and it happens, you know, especially when you're trying to pack the cabin. So the cat got out, and sure enough, you were telling me before, it's crawling yeah. by my feet. The, 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 uh, my wife was saying that uh, they'll take a dive for the deepest, darkest region that's, that's usually by the rudder pedals in an airplane. Yeah. So the cat was more afraid than we were, but we promptly made sure we could keep safety of flight. And having the passenger in that situation was helpful. That passenger scooped up the, the, the cat and got it back in, in the crate secure. Makes, makes good sense. But the other one that happens more often is escape artists at the airport. Oh. So on the receiving side, you really have to be careful because these guys, they generally, you know, endured a stressful flight. And as soon as you open up that, the door of the crate, they can dart. They're ready to go. They're ready to go. Well, they might need to relieve themselves or they're just tired of being cooped up. So anytime you can get them in a more secure location, which if there's an FBO that would permit um, you bring the animals inside, or you have a hanger, yeah. or you just want to be ready with a slip leash. So slip leash is a, it's a, a must to ah. have when you're doing this. Slip leashes, um, if you're not familiar, it's not the clip on with a collar because these animals don't have collars. Oh, okay, it slips right over there. Slips now. over there, and as they pull, it gets tighter. Okay. It's not inhumane for short periods of time, by the way. It's making sure you keep that so animal safe. Yep. So you, you can slip. To, you don't want to run out onto the tower. Yeah, and we've had that happen. Yeah, we've yeah. had that happen, and you've got to contact the tower, let them know there's a loose animal on the field. Then the you know the golf cart or whatever truck they have on the field, is, you're doing a wild goose chase at that point. It could be comical, but it actually it happens all the time. It could be a safety issue. Yeah. So have one person hold the crate, open the door while you're getting ready to put the slip leash on. Makes sense. Yeah. That's a good tip. Well, so now, uh, tell me about how do you deal with uh, with pet hair in the, in a cockpit? We're always cleaning up uh, pet hair from my border collie Happy and uh, my, my cat Simon at home. 
How do you deal with that in the aircraft? Yeah, well, and that, that, that hair gets mostly all over the crates, uh, but it can get onto the the, the aircraft materials, whether it be the seats or the floor. Um, the lint roller, duct tape to get it off, uh, vacuums, okay. whatever you have available to you. But if you start out with a good crate and situation, we put wee-wee pads in every crate. Okay. That's also a huge point because it soaks up a lot of that stuff and the hair. But we haven't had, we've been lucky, we haven't had a huge, if you put that tarp down yeah. and you do all those things I mentioned with the, with the wee-wee pads and secure crates, I haven't had to deal much with, uh, with that. And for folks uh, who are looking to transport pets, you know, uh, or if they uh, or have some questions about this, what would your helpers on the ground prepare, uh, how, would your, how would they prepare an animal, basically, so that they would not have an accident? Yeah, so uh, it's always good to, there's best practices online that you could search. It's the same best practices that all the veterinarians and the shelters abide by, and there's there's tidbits in there about transport also, which is useful. And generally, best practices, and they should be aware of this, but you should. it's always a good idea to ask. Uh, don't feed the animal prior. Uh, don't feed the animal in flight, uh, because then you minimize a lot of the air sickness and anything else that might happen. No treats. Do all that stuff on the receiving end with the treats. So when you land, uh, you then have helpers on the ground that will come and, and receive the animals. And are they sometimes the end family, or is it in between? It's always in, the end, in between, because there's a process to adopt an animal. Okay. They, there's an intake procedure that the receiving shelters have. And I wouldn't do any rescue where the direct adopter is receiving the animal, because you might be skirting some laws with transport. Uh, there are laws that you need to check with state-to-state -state transport. We are, we're registered with the USDA. I don't think you need to go to that extent. But because we're a charity doing this, and you you obviously need to check with your aircraft insurance, but we haven't run into anything that basically has been a hard stop with transporting animals. This became more of an issue during COVID. Okay. They were more concerned with traveling. How long were you spending on the ground? That was a con consideration with COVID. Or the humans, basically. Humans, not so much the animals, right. but you want to make sure that you have all the paperwork. They have all their shots. Yes. Uh, don't transport an animal that could be considered dodgy with a disease or not. Look over that paperwork, but generally, if that shelter on the receiving end is willing to accept that animal, that's generally your green light. As long as they're, you know, they have a website, they're a registered 501c3. Just, you know, put put your um, detector on in terms of does everything seem legit? Raise your raise your antennas. Yeah, you're as PIC, you're the final authority as Absolutely. to whether accept that animal. But the FAA considers animals; they don't consider them passengers necessarily they consider them uh, you're you're responsible as pic yeah. for that animals while you're transporting them for their safety that makes sense yeah just like you would uh, in any other uh, like a human I yeah. guess. so um again tell folks how they can get involved with public benefit and outreach flying like we're doing right now as you as you change fuel tanks in this saratoga yeah. uh and we're, we're cruising after an hour along, of flight. About a, 180 knots ground speed. 180 knots ground speed. That's why we have United a little bit different audio today on the hangar talk. And we're at 10,000 feet. And we're burning about, what, 23 gallons an hour right now? Yeah, I'm burning a little higher than I normally would. I like to get there there quickly, and we got plenty of fuel. Manifold pressure, 30 inches. And 2,400 on the tack. We have an intercooler, which keeps things gotcha. cooler in here. It's a great mod on these turbos. 
but not everybody feels comfortable uh, pushing a plane like this. Uh, but I, I found that it, it definitely could take it. And we have autopilot on in case people are wondering. Yeah. We're monitoring ATC in the background. We basically are giving a clearance all the way into our destination. So we have a minute or two to talk. We're going to wrap it up pretty soon because I don't want to divide your, your flying duties too much. But how can other folks get involved in public benefit flying like this? and like pilotstotherescue.org. You said they could sign up on your website. Yeah. Uh, give us a couple of quick tips. So if you want to get involved with Pilots to the Rescue, go to pilotstotherescue.org. That's all spelled out, pilots, T-O-T-H-E, rescue.org. I'm sure if you Google, it will come up. We have an active Facebook uh, community as well. And then uh, other public benefit flights as well. Uh, AOPA does a great job of, of cataloging those. There's another organization called Air Care Alliance, which okay. is great. We are part of that. AOPA awesome. participates in that. Awesome. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I want to encourage people to get involved with some type of public benefit flying. You're doing a real great thing for the aviation community, promoting aviation, and also giving back to our society as a greater whole. That makes sense. Now, yeah. um, before we go, like we're, we're wrapping up a little bit more, I just had a couple more questions. How about young people? How can we get more young people involved? Because if they knew that they could get into aviation and do some kind of missions like this, giving back, that might get a, a few more folks into aviation. Any thoughts on that? We're always willing to work with young, youngsters uh, as long as they're accompanied by parents. And uh, when they reach out to us, if they're in the uh, New Jersey, Caldwell, Essex County airport vicinity, we're happy to have them come by and check it out. And I think as ground uh, handlers and helping on the receiving end, it's extremely helpful. So um, they ha some of the more established organizations like Angel Flight or PALS, they have these things called mission assistance yeah. where you can sign up. I don't know what the stipulation is. You might need to be 18. But I think if you just reach, you sign up for any uh, organization and you reach out to some of the pilots and ask if you can meet them on the receiving end or if they need help with the handlers, they would be happy to share their the, the beauty of general aviation with them. Makes sense. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that uh, participating in a flying club is another good way for pilots to A, save money, B, have that camaraderie, and C, get mission focused on something like this. So that's something to reiterate to folks who are listening. Um, now, before we go, we're in a really nice airplane. Uh, tell us now, did pilotstotherescue.org get us this airplane? Did we get the airplane? and then get pilotstotherescue.org, because people are going to be inquisitive about that. Sure. Well, I, when I started Pilots to the Rescue six years ago, I started out by yeah, renting in airplanes and being part of flying clubs. Yep. And then we, I started the charity. It's a 501c3, so yep. donations are tax deductible. And we built up enough money. I felt comfortable getting an aircraft loan through Republic Bank. Okay. And then COVID hit last year, and we got an offer on that Lance, uh, Piper Lance, that we couldn't refuse. Oh, okay. And we were out without an aircraft for quite a while because of COVID and stuff like that. But then this one came across uh, Bartel Aviation, who we used to acquire the aircraft. This came across his desk. And uh, this was an aircraft he had bought and sold to a previous owner. He was looking to get into a, a twin. And uh, we, sc we scooped it up. And I'm proud to say now that we own this one outright. We don't have a loan, which is great because interest can saddle an organization or a person. Yeah. Um, with, with debt and interest, you know. And you told me a minute a minute ago before we got uh, in the airplane for the flight that that really the COVID had a big impact on you this past year. You, your your business to business event business really has like a lot of people suffered. And it, this it sounds like it laser focused you to think more about your your outreach organization. Can you touch on that real quick? Absolutely. I never thought I would have a career in aviation. I was a private pilot, instrument rated. I have over 600 hours. I wasn't thinking commercial. Last year, COVID hit, 
and the trajectory of the organization increased. People wanted furry friends. If you notice, they cleared the shelters and the kennels. So because the organization was doing so well and my other businesses were literally eviscerated, business to business events, a light bulb went off my head and I said, you know, I'm gonna give this a go. I'm gonna see if I can do this. Maybe not full time, but as a way to supplement my business. So I kicked myself off the board, made myself executive director, and now I'm working for the charity, basically, doing these missions. I'm doing more rescue missions this year than the whole history of the organization. I'm flying on average once a week. This week I'm going twice a week. And I'm still paying out of pocket, but once I get my commercial, line, uh, commercial license, I can then pay myself, uh, the, the charity hires me as a commercial pilot. Still paying for the fuel, but it's certainly less significant out-of-pocket expenses. Well, that's a very big life commitment on your behalf to really change your trajectory you know, at this stage. I love doing this. This work is, it doesn't feel like work to me. You know, they say find something you love doing and then figure out a way to make money. That's, I'm living proof of that. That's what I'm doing. I mean. I, uh, I hope to do this full-time in the next three to five years or looking to save for the caravan. At that point, I think I'll be full-time. So, Michael, anything else you want to um, interject before we wrap it up? You know, as we headed south here, we're uh, passing through Roanoke, that area towards North Carolina. Uh, give us a, a quick a final comment or two. Absolutely. Last thing I will tell people listening, public benefit flights are extremely rewarding. Go out and do one, whether it's a pet, medical flight, what have you. Get involved because... It is a, a great mission and it makes you feel really filled inside and you'll feel like more of an accomplished pilot. It gives you an opportunity as a private pilot to do things that maybe a commercial operator can only do. Um, so it's extremely rewarding and, and see what happens in your life. You may never had known that you love to give back or that you love these pets or you're helping this person who's struggling. So it's a, a great and rewarding way to use, use your ticket. Outstanding. Pilots to the rescue.org. Michael Schneider, thanks a lot. And we'll be headed down to North Carolina and then delivering some, some pups and kittens up to uh, Essex County. Thanks again. Thanks, David. Thanks, Ayopa. All right, David. Okay, I get flying dogs, right? Flying cats to me seems a little bit like torture to the cats. How, how did it go? <laughs> you have to be in the back seat for that one like <laughs> I was, Ian. It was, it was torture to me, man. I'll tell you a funny thing. I, I took the front, uh, the front seat, the co-pilot seat on the way out there and got a chance to do this you know, interview with, um, with Michael as we were flying. And he's a really good pilot. He's a really good instrument rated pilot. And so I, I uh, swapped with our own uh, AOPA Live this week, Josh Cochran. Mm -hmm. So I would be in the back seat for the return trip. Well, that was just a bad place to be in. You don't want to be behind, you know, a dozen or so cats that are feeling queasy, <laughs> <laughs> if you know what I mean. And uh, uh. so, uh, yeah. And I've got a cat, Simon Kit Cat. It's got his own, he's got his own Instagram page. But, uh, but yeah, that wasn't a great place to be. But you know, here's the thing: Pilots to the Rescue is doing great work, and they're bringing pets. Generally, you hear about this: they bring pets from the southeast to families, appreciative families in the northeast. There's generally more pets in the southeast 
that need to go to better homes. And there's generally more people in the Northeast that are looking to augment their family with a pet. So that's why you see a lot of from the South to the North kind of travels, but and more power to him. You know, here's the thing. Uh, Michael and others like like him doing these kind, type of rescues, it's all about flying, but it's uh, it's all you have to be a compassionate person. you got to know about pets. You really have to multitask, and you fly no higher than 7,000 feet, you know, cabin altitude to keep the pets, you know, comfortable. And that, there were some key things that we picked up that I'll go to school on from, from now on for sure. Very cool. All right. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcast. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.